right? Exodus chapter 7, actually just the last verse of Exodus 7 and then into Exodus 8. That's where we're going to be today as we continue talking about God's work through Moses and Aaron in the plagues of Egypt. And today we're on the second plague. It's a plague about frogs, which I don't know if you love frogs or hate frogs, but let's be honest, frogs are kind of disgusting. So, uh, Clearly, this is a plague, and, and we are going to dive into what God does uh, in this plague today. And, you know, as I thought about frogs, and I thought about, you know, last time that, that I was fascinated by them, or captured them, or had a pet frog, or accidentally killed a frog by like, being too kind to it, or whatever, you know, I thought back to my, my uh, childhood days, and as kids, we, our playground most of the time was my our backyard or we had a friend we lived in a court it was another friend that was their backyard we went to we, we played in the backyard all the time i know that's not that's not the norm nowadays but that's what we did we were always out in the backyard playing and our backyard was pretty cool my dad had uh, built a swing set for us he had uh, built a sandbox for us which you know nobody does anymore but we thought that was pretty cool uh, and and the coolest thing is he built us a tree house so up in these trees we had literally a tree house um, and he made this, you know, like in the middle of the floor, there was a hole. You could climb up some ladder and some, some, some boards that were nailed to the tree, and you could climb up and get into the treehouse. But one day I decided, in all of my brilliance, that, that that entryway was too mundane. It was just too normal. It was too boring. I was going to pile some stuff up. I took our wagon, and I piled some things on top of it. I was going to climb in through the window on the outside of this treehouse. You know, the, just, of course you would, right? Like, the, you, why would you use the normal door? I was going to climb up on the outside. Meanwhile, my brother and sister were saying to me, Mark, you're dumb. What's wrong with you? Why don't you just come up the normal way? You're going to be in trouble. What are you doing? And I was like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I don't know. In all my eight-year-old self, I was like, it's no problem. Don't worry about it. I got this. You guys don't know how fun this is. As I was climbing up this pile of stuff that I had, I was reaching towards the window, and I was, you know, kind of getting up on my tiptoes, and suddenly the wagon, which is actually on wheels, <laughs> rolled out from under me, and I fell flat on my back uh, and landed full weight on my back. And then this thing happened, and, and I, like, never had experienced this before. I couldn't breathe. And I was, like, panicked, and I'm thinking, in all of my eight-year-old wisdom, this is how I die. <laughs> you know, I, if I had been able to breathe, I would have said, I was so wrong, Cheryl and Brian, I was so wrong, I should never have done this. But I was on the ground and I could not breathe. And so my sister, in, in her tender compassion, looked out the window down at me and, and said, what's wrong? And I was like, oh, you know, I can't breathe. And she said, it's fine, you just got the wind knocked out of me, Right? Now, I had never heard this saying before. This is the first time I had experienced it or heard it. I had no idea what happened. I had no idea that this happened because I fell on my back. I, all I thought was, it's over for me. And, and she said, oh, you just got the wind knocked out of you. And I thought, that's, I don't know what that means. Like, it sounded like something my parents would threaten if I was going to get in trouble. Like, I'll knock the wind out of you, you know. Like, I didn't know. This, this phrase that she was like throwing out there didn't mean anything to me. I could not understand what it meant. All I knew was that I was about to die, right? And then sure enough, after a few, you know, a minute or a couple seconds or whatever, so you start to be able to breathe again and like, oh, okay, so that, that wasn't the end for me. But 
the panic was very real. And the experience, some of the panic was, I had no idea what was happening to me or why it was happening to me. And honestly, in other times in life, when, that, when you run into somebody or you, you're in a sporting event or something, you get the wind knocked out of you, you still have that panic. You have to kind of talk yourself out of it. It takes quite a few times before you can kind of like get yourself to like, this is okay. Because even though you've experienced it, even though you know something, it doesn't always affect your emotional experience. It doesn't always affect what you know. Sometimes it takes a few times for you to be able to connect the dots, you know? And I thought about that as I thought about these plagues and how over and over again God really teaches the same lesson, and it takes a while for the lesson to get through, for the message to get through. And I think most of us know what I experienced there in a bigger way. I think most of us know that it is, in our lives, we are all living examples of how many times people can make the same mistake and find it hard to connect the consequences to what happened. Like, why am I here? Why is this going so wrong? I'm in a panic, but I don't always recognize why everything is happening the way that it's happening. And many, many times it's because we have made mistakes, and we've made mistakes over and over again, and we've never woken up to the problem is not that life is just out to get us, or people are just mean, or anything. The problem is I keep making dumb choices. I keep doing things I shouldn't do. Some of us have made the same mistakes over and over with money or with anger. Same mistake. I should have learned by now. With gossip. I, I know I should hold my tongue. With worry. I know I shouldn't worry. With pride. You, you just tend to get puffed up. Like we make the same mistakes over and over. We are people that oftentimes have a difficult time connecting the consequences in our life to the choices that brought those consequences. And when we face the consequences, because we can't connect it to the choices, we feel a little bit out of control. We feel a little bit at a loss. We feel a little bit like, oh no, this is the end. Think about what it took for you to learn. Hopefully you've learned. But what it took for you to learn how to deal with like romantic relationships. Like your first one didn't go that well, right? It took a few tries. It took a little bit of time. It took a little bit of of observing and and refining. Friendships are the same way. You trust the wrong people and you learn over time how to manage life like that. You learn by mistakes. Everything that you learn, for us as human beings, the reality is it takes repetition. Even when I was in college, my, my engineering classes, my Greek and my Hebrew, we would go home with all of these exercises to do so we could learn what we should do and what we shouldn't do because it takes repetition to learn. These plagues are an exercise in repetition. They're an exercise in God repeating the message over and over and Pharaoh refusing to accept the message. And as we read it, it sometimes feels to us like it's hard to believe Look at what's happening. How did you reject that, Pharaoh? But the application for this is not for us to feel better than Pharaoh. The application is for us in our own lives. We do not want to be people who refuse to learn. We do not want to be people who miss what God is trying to show us, who add extra repetitions to the lessons we should have learned by now. And if that in any way, shape, or form is you, then let's talk about frogs this morning because that's what, that's what God uses in this second plague. So pick up with me in uh, Exodus chapter 7, verse 25, and we'll go down 
to chapter 8, verse 6. It says this, Seven days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go, so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, stretch your hand with your staff over the streams and canals and ponds and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land. All right, so yeah. Wow, all right. This is, these are plagues for a reason. It's, I know that when you're in Sunday school, you have these nice little felt things that you put up on a flannel graph and everything's like, oh, that's so pleasant. It is not that pleasant, right? You start, to, you start to imagine what this was like. So it begins by telling us that seven days had passed. And while we don't get a timing on all the rest of the plagues, in literature of this era, this idea is, this is kind of the pattern for the plagues. It would take some time. God would give some time between one plague and the start of the next plague. It means that over the course of 10 plagues, we're talking about months where God played out his power in front of Pharaoh, in front of the people of Egypt. And that, that time that God gave just is a reflection of how patient our God is. Has God been patient with you? In your learning, here's a question, is God more patient with you than you are with you? Isn't that cool? Because God knows it takes his time. And God has confidence in where we're all going. So God gives us time to respond. God gave Egypt and Pharaoh and his officials time to respond. Plague after plague after plague. On the other side, this was a long wait for Israel, who was putting their trust in the Lord. This is how we fight our battles. We will wait for you. Sometimes what that means is, I'm waiting because God is being patient with someone who's rebelling. Sometimes we're like, God, why are you so mad at me? God's not mad at me at all. God is patiently waiting for someone who's been rebelling to turn. And meanwhile, we're miserable. Like, remember the whole thing where Pharaoh stopped giving them straw and they had to go dig stuff out of the ground? There's no indication that that stopped. So during these months where the quota was still heavy and they were, they were unable to keep up, there's no indication that Pharaoh backed off. So for these months, the lives of the Israelites are increasingly difficult, overwhelming and exhausting while God waits for, to give Pharaoh, to give Egypt a chance to respond. And so what we find is Pharaoh making the same mistakes again and again. This is only the second plague out of 10. And so you can imagine that at the end of this plague, Pharaoh will say no to God again. Like many things in life, all of us do this. We go around and around on the same lessons and the same mistakes. And for us as believers, if you are a child of God, here's the key questions for you. We've got two of them. The, the reason that we go around and around on the same mistakes are because we reject the right that God has to say what is right. That what God says is better than what I think. 
that what God says is in bounds and out of bounds is right. Now you're like, no, I don't, I don't reject that at all. Except in practice, when we make mistakes, we often do. When, when God says wait and we say, no, I can't wait anymore, who are we rejecting? Whose instruction, whose way are we rejecting? When God says you should live this way and we live a different way, we are saying, God, you don't have the right to say what's right. This is the problem our world has. And it's not that surprising that our world has it. They don't trust him anyway. They don't even believe in him. The, the challenge is for us who are children of God to answer this question. Because when we say God does not have the right to say what's right, then we find ourselves in these lessons over and over. But the reason is because we pushed away God's direction. We've decided to be our own boss. Let me just brainstorm with you how we do this sometimes. I talk to people all the time who are like, well, do I really need connection with the body of Christ? Do I really need to come to church? I mean, I can worship God anywhere. Do I really need to spend time reading the Word of God through the week or praying through the week? Do I really, is it really a big deal about the moral choices that I, that I make? You know, is it really that big of a deal? Can I just do what makes me happy? Can I just hide my behavior? Doesn't that fix my problems if just nobody ever finds out? See, these are the ways we say, God has said what's right, but I will decide, no, I'll do what I'd like rather than what God has said is right. You see, we do it kind of all over the world, all over the place. The difference between ending up in this unending loop of the same mistakes and a person who's about to be set free is simply our response to this first question, does God have the right to say what's right? The second question is this, is he good? Is God right? Not just does he have the right to tell me what to do, but is God's plan right? Is his plan best? God goes to to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. That is God's demand and gives Pharaoh the invitation to respond. And Pharaoh says, you have no right to tell me what to do. And if I did what you wanted, I would suffer loss. And so I will not do. Your plan is not good for me. Now that, you can see how Pharaoh would think that, certainly as someone who did not worship or trust the true and living God. And yet, what I would say for us is that is not a theoretical question. Is God, does God have the right to say what's right? And is God right? Is he right? Is his plan good? Because if those questions reach into your day in, day out life, when you go to work, how do you work? Do you work? When you run a business, how do you run a business? Are you honest? Are you upright? Do you reflect Jesus Christ in how you do business? When you, or if you're in school, how do you do your schooling? How do you take notes? How do you take tests? How much time do you put into it? It asks, these questions ask, if my dreams should be laid on the altar to God's plans. If what I think about relationships needs to be submitted to God's direction. It digs deep into your sexuality, into your moral choices. It digs deep into your decisions about where you will spend your money and where you will spend your time. Does God have the right to say what is right? And is he right in what he says? When you don't answer those questions by faith, when you don't answer those questions with a yes, there are consequences that come into your life. 
we think a lot of times of them as punishment. Oh, God is mad at me and he's punishing me. But think about this. If God actually is right, if his way is actually best, then isn't God being good to bring hardness into your life, hardship into your life, when you make a decision that will bring you something less than what is good? Isn't God good to do that? Wouldn't, if God was like, whatever, pick whatever. I mean, I have a great thing for you, but I don't really care if you get it or not. Wouldn't that reflect a coldness in the heart of God? And so instead of thinking about them as punishments, a lot of times it's much more healthy to say, look how much God cares that I get it right. Look how much he cares that I experience what he has for me, what is good for me, that I don't miss it, that I don't reject it, that I don't push it away. It makes a lot of sense for people who don't trust Jesus to say, no, God does not have the right, and no, God isn't right. But for those of us who follow Jesus, our challenge is how we answer those questions. God goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And that invitation is there. Does God have the right? And is he right? Then God goes to the consequences. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. Now, why frogs? I mean, is God just up in heaven, like, spinning a wheel? Like, hmm, I don't know. What, what should we do next? Why frogs? Well, frogs were represented, depicted in the gods of Egypt. Specifically, this is interesting, specifically, the goddess of childbirth had the head of a frog. So, in the second plague, where God is waging war against the Egyptian gods, he chooses a, 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 a creature that they have incorporated into this idea of childbirth. Certainly he is showing his power over their gods. I will bring frogs up out of it. I will do what I tell you with. Your gods don't have the say. I have the say. And, and God doing that is not so much in pride, like, look how great I am, but in goodness. You are deceived into thinking that your gods are gods. I am going to show you that they are not gods at all. And that, that's kind of in the whole course of this as the plagues unfold, God is showing that he is the true and living God. But it also seems that there is a direct connection to the Egyptians' treatment of newborns among God's people. The God in the second plague, first plague was the Nile, the second plague was childbirth. Was there anything going on about children in the Nile and newborns? It's like God is saying, now listen, I want you to understand the path that you've been on, this path of power, this path of superiority, this path of using your power because of fear to try to suppress people from flourishing. This is wrong, and it's your problem, and I want to show you it's your problem. So plague number one, the water that you depend on, the water that you threw those babies into will turn to blood. What a powerful reminder of what you've done. And number two, if you want to worship the God of childbirth while at the same time destroying newborns, then I'm going to put this reminder all over you. I'm going to bring it into your houses and into your beds and all over your country. And so that says to us how we, God says to the Egyptians through this, how have you treated helpless people, powerless people, weak people matters to me. I don't know how often this is more than theoretical for us, but I'm saying to you believers, there are people in your life every single day that are disadvantaged, and you have an advantage over them in some way. Uh, financially, uh, relationally, uh, position of powers, you have influence. Some way you have an advantage over them. How you use your advantage 
towards those who are disadvantaged matters to God. God saw the Egyptians who were in power and how they treated the, the, the Israelites who were not and how they abused their power to destroy them. And God calls them to answer for it. He says, I've seen it, and I want you to see it too. I want you to see the horror of it too. Believers, we need to be people who recognize this as well. So God says, now here's, here's what's going to happen. Frogs are going to come everywhere. They're going to come on every one. They're gonna, we're going to level the playing field here. All of Egypt's going to experience this. The, the cool thing about frogs is they are not intimidated by a palace or by a title, right? So he's like, Pharaoh, they're coming to your bed. All your officials, you get them too. Everybody gets the frogs all over the place, right? Now, this is not a pleasant plague. It is not cute. It is unsanitary. It is dirty. And it is certainly disruptive. I don't know. Maybe just imagine you've laid down after a long day of hard work under a hot sun. And what you've got in your bed jumping all over you is frogs all night long. This is not going to be good, right? This is not going to be uh, a pleasant experience. When you're going to make food and you're trying to prepare food and frogs are jumping into the food that you're making, that's what you, in the kneading trough and in your ovens, there are going to be frogs everywhere. This is an escalation of God's plagues over Egypt. The first plague was down at the river, and it had an effect on their daily life, but in order to kind of see it and experience it, you had to kind of go to the river. This plague comes to them. This plague goes across the land of Egypt and into their homes. It marches in everywhere uninvited, unavoidable. They were constantly aware of this plague day in and day out, and it's very clear that this plague goes on until it is deliberately stopped. God expands the plague and its fallout, turning up the volume on those who need to listen. Has God ever turned the volume up on you when you weren't paying attention? And it kind of feels like frogs all through your life, right? If you are living day in, day out frustrated, if you are living annoyed and irritated, is it possible that it's not about all those dumb people out there? That it's just God saying, you keep ignoring what I'm trying to show you. And I'm going to annoy you until you wake up. Until you see what I'm trying to get through to you. And don't begrudge God his goodness in that. Because if you're like, well, why couldn't God show me in some pleasant way? Let's be honest. When God shows you in a pleasant way, you don't see it at all, do you? The thing that gets your attention is when trouble shows up. And God knows that. Now, if you could grow in your faith, if I could grow in my faith to the place where when God was good to me, I'd be like, I see you, God, then maybe God would use that more often. But the reality is, when things are going well, I quickly forget God. So it's when trouble shows up that God gets my attention, that life gets my attention, that I'm aware of my need for a rescue and a Savior and power beyond me. And so God says, here's what's going to happen. And then God sends Moses and Aaron. He uses them to demonstrate his work. I think there had to be some understanding because God says to Aaron, stretch out your staff and make frogs come up on the land. I'd be like, make frogs come up? How do I do that? But there's certainly an understanding there that what Aaron has to do is be faithful, take his staff and stretch it over. And that is going to be the sign that God is doing this. God is using 
physical people and, and even a physical stick. He's using these things that are seen and watched and heard so that it is very clear that God is the one doing this. That this didn't just happen. It didn't just show up. And so God sends Aaron. Aaron does it and it says, frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. So just like God said, it happened. And it happened when God said it, when the man of God did exactly what God told him to do so that it was very clear this is God doing it. And then something weird happened. So read with me verses 7 and 8. It says this, But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. They also made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And I'm going to read 8, even though it's kind of part of the next section. I want to read it anyway. It says, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Something really weird happens here, and it's this. In the first signs, when they had the staff turning into a snake and they had water turning to blood, the magicians were able to reproduce what Moses and Aaron had done. And it was some of Pharaoh's reason to say, I don't need to listen to you. Our gods are comparable. The, the magicians, in this case, do the same thing that Moses and Aaron do. They make frogs come up. But Pharaoh completely ignores it. We're starting to get to the place where Pharaoh recognizes your little magic trick is not an excuse for me not to deal with this. I got to find a... I got. I got to find a way to deal with this. Because, let's be honest, the magicians weren't helping. The problem was too many frogs, and you made more frogs. Thanks, but I don't need your help anymore. Right? And so Pharaoh's kind of like unconvinced by that. But the reality behind it is, he doesn't go to the magicians and say, let's figure out what we're going to do. You guys are powerful too. What are we going to do about this? He turns and goes to Moses and Aaron and says, please take them away. Pharaoh's counterfeits stop convincing him. And he implicitly acknowledges Moses is the one connected to the power to solve this problem. What do we learn? There are people in your lives, many of them, lost, don't know the Lord. Some of them are just far away from God. And they will tell you that your faith is foolishness. They will tell you, you don't, you, your God is just like every other God. It's, if it makes you feel better, that's fine for you. People claim they don't need to trust or follow or obey God, and they will tell you, you don't need to either. And some of them can counterfeit a little bit of what God does, just like these magicians. Their message to Pharaoh in producing these frogs was, you don't need to listen to this God. We're as powerful as him. But ultimately, over time, if you buy into it, what you'll find is it becomes less and less convincing. You have to work harder and harder to talk yourself into believing that some counterfeit measures up to the real thing. And it doesn't really have any actual answers to your problem. These magicians who are saying, look, Here's your excuse to not submit and to not obey. Here's your excuse. It didn't really have an answer to the problem, which was frogs are everywhere. And so Pharaoh turns to Moses and Aaron and says, pray for me. Let's read that again. We'll read down to the end of this whole uh, incident. Verse 8 down to verse thir uh, 15. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you 
the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people that you and your houses may be rid of the frogs except for those that remain in the Nile. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said. Moses replied, it will be as you say so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will leave you and your houses, your officials and your people and they will remain only in the Nile. After Moses and Aaron left Pharaoh, Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs he had brought on Pharaoh, and the Lord did what Moses asked. The frogs died in the houses, in the courtyards, and in the fields. They were piled into heaps, and the land reeked of them. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. An interesting conclusion to this particular play. As often happens in the series over and over, Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, relief, please, relief. Please pray to God that I can get relief. This is an interesting paradox. It is one we find around us all the time, and hopefully it's not one we find in us very often, but it is easy for us to have the same paradox, which is this. I know where the power is, but I don't want to submit to the powerful one. So pray for me. Have you ever had people who don't believe in God? They're like, you know, people who are living a life that is clearly without God, but when a problem comes and they know you trust God, what do they do? Pray for me. It's a great way to share your faith and to pray for them, absolutely. But the problem for them is not their problem. The problem is that they're coming to you asking you to pray to one that they don't believe in, that they don't want to submit to, they don't want to surrender to, they don't want to follow. They just want his power. They don't want him. It's a prayer of desperation. We want relief without the one that we ask to bring it. This is not going to solve your problem. If you've ever been in that spot where you were like, I'm going to pray, ask someone to pray for me, or I'm going to pray to God because I have some things going on in my life that I would like relief from. What you will find is sometimes God will, just like he did here with Pharaoh, sometimes he won't. But it will never bring solutions to your life until you go past the relief you're asking for and go to the one that you're asking it from. I want you. What you can do for me is nice. I want you. I want you. Pharaoh's like, I don't want you. I just want what you can do, please. And so I'm saying, believers, how many times is this us? Our prayer life is about wanting God to fix things and organize things and use his power on our behalf and for our benefit. And we sing songs about this is how we fight our battles, but we want to be the general in charge of God's power. That is not how we fight our battles. How we fight our battles is, God, you've got the battle. I'm just along for the ride. I'm just here to sing praise. I'm here to witness your goodness. I'm here to, to receive you telling me what the right time is, what the right way is. I'm here to listen to you. You're the one in charge. I want you to be in charge, not me. If all you're asking for is relief, if all you're asking for is results, you're just like Pharaoh. God, I'll take what you can do, just not you, please. Interesting how Jesus uses that exact same picture with the prodigal son, isn't it? The son goes to his father and says, Father, basically, uh, why haven't you died yet? I want your money. Right? Isn't that what he says? 
I want my inheritance, but I can't wait for this thing. I mean, I've waited long enough, and you're still around, so give me money. Jesus uses that picture to describe people's response to the Father. Isn't that what Pharaoh does? Isn't that what we do? God, I want to take my prayer list, and I want to, I want to tell you all the things I want you to do, and do this and do this. And God, why didn't you do that? Why, God, why me? God's saying to you, do you ever just want me? Do you ever just want to spend time with me? Get to know me? Tell me what's going on in your life and hear my heart. And do you ever want to spend just your life with me instead of always looking for what I can do for you? Pharaoh says, pray to the Lord, take these frogs away. And then Moses does this really cool thing. He says, listen, Pharaoh, in case you're going to somehow label this a mistake or a coincidence, I'm going to give you the right to say when this plague stops. Now, Pharaoh's answer is is tomorrow, which we're like, why didn't he say today? Well, the understanding was it's going to take some time for Moses to go plead to God. So basically what he's saying is, as soon as possible, please, get tomorrow. So Moses says, okay, we will do, I will go pray tomorrow, and God will stop these frogs tomorrow. God is doing this, and Moses is doing this for this clarity that God wants people to have. God is working in the world around us. God is working in our lives. God is here, and He is visibly, there is evidence for those who will believe, there is evidence for Him that we can see. He is showing Himself. I would say there's a spiritual war in the world around us, and there's a spiritual war in us that does not like to see God's hand when we need to, especially when we've been wrong about something like Pharaoh has been wrong here. God's hand is something we try to ignore or or push away. But God shows clarity, even with Pharaoh here, giving Pharaoh the choice of when. And so Moses goes and prays to God. And on tomorrow, just like Pharaoh said, the frogs, the plague of frogs is over. And then there's all this fallout from it. There are dead frogs everywhere. They're piled up in heaps. There's stink everywhere. So it's not as though the clarity has diminished because the frog plague has ended. The clarity is still there, but it feels like, okay, I can see the end. And as soon as I can see the end, what Pharaoh does is he ignores the clarity that God gave, that God brought the frogs and destroyed the frogs. Pharaoh just blows it off and moves on. Some people, when they look at this, are like, well, this is a natural consequence. The the river turned red, so the frogs came out of the river. But this is not a natural consequence. Number one, the number of frogs that come is clearly denoted as supernatural. It's not just like, oh, there were some frogs that came out. It's like they covered the land of Egypt. And by the way, frogs who were going to go out of water that was somehow tainted and they couldn't live in were not going to travel into the cities and into the houses and the homes. They were going to stay by the wetlands. The miracle here is that God directed this whole thing. He massively produced more frogs than was natural, and he drove them into places that they would not naturally go. And then when they died, the evidence of them was all around. All the wreckage was all around, but it's over. You ever made a deal with God in the middle of a hard time? And then when it was over, so was your deal? That's what Pharaoh does. Pharaoh goes, oh, now it's all done? I can just thank you, God. Well, he doesn't even say thank you, God. He's just like, I'm glad that it's done. Now I can ignore it. 
When Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. The idea is, Pharaoh is not actually interested in what's true, in what's good. There's no denying this plague, and there's no denying the power that brought it. Pharaoh denies it anyway. Children of God, let's not be like that. Let's not be people who live like the weight of our lives is on us, like our battles belong to us, like our dreams and our plans, it's up to us to make them happen. Let's be people who learn a lesson from what we see in Pharaoh here. Let's be people who seek our Savior, who just rejoice and relish in time that we can spend with our Redeemer. Let's be people who just glory in the moments that we can spend with God. Let's be people who love Jesus. Let's be people who learn from this. Because far too regularly, our prayer life is all occupied like Pharaoh's prayer life. Please give me relief. And as soon as you do, I can forget you. How would that go in any relationship you have in your life? If someone was always coming to you, I want your help, I want your help, and as soon as you gave them your help, then they stopped talking to you until the next time they needed help. What do you think of that relationship? How healthy is it? How close do you feel to those people? And yet, isn't that what we do with God? We need to go deeper. Children of God, God is teaching us lessons. One of them is not to substitute in what he can do for the fact of who he is. But there are a lot of things that God is trying to teach us. God is trying to show us, and he's being patient with us. The way he teaches us a lot of times is bringing pain, consequences into our lives. And the question he's asking us is, do I have the right to be right? Do you believe that I am right? Will you trust in me? Will you submit your life to me? And so if we are children of God, what I'm saying is, Let's desire him, and let's trust him. Let's be people of God. Let's let him be God, and we'll be the ones that have open and trusting hearts ready to follow him. This week, as we walk out of this place, let's be people who bring that to life in us. All right, let's close this morning in a word of prayer. Let's stand together, and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Father, that you answer prayers sometimes even just when we're asking for relief and not you. You just show us your goodness over and over and over again. Some of us today, you are, your spirit is working to draw us back, to draw us in, to draw us close to you, to stop being so obsessed with the pace and the, the race of life to come back to what matters, to what makes life alive, to come back to our relationship with you. Father, our lives have been hard, but they've been hard for a reason. And maybe we haven't connected it, and your spirit would open our eyes to how what we've been doing and how we've been living have been bringing consequences to us. Father, help us by faith to surrender to your right to say what's right and to believe that you are right, that your plan is good. And help us, Father, to live that out and to share our faith with the world around us because it's a faith we live and it's someone that we know and someone that we love and it's a life that brings life to our soul. So Father, I pray right now you would 
go with us as you promised to never leave us or forsake us, to go with us to the ends of the world and to the ends of the age. Go with us now. Show us what your spirit wants, to, wants us to see this day and this week and help us to follow you, we, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.